0: session. Yeah. Um, I'm excited about this. I hope nobody is demon possessed. Um, This is such an interesting story because, A, it's just weird. I mean, let's just go ahead and admit that. And I have to think that when Mark was writing this down, listening to Peter tell him the story, it had to have just been like, I don't know. And so we're just going to engage with it and see what we can... uh, do with it. But basically, uh, it's a pretty simple story to follow. The outline of it is very, very easy to run through. I mean, Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He's teaching. I'll talk about that in a moment. And then this uh, man stands up and says all kinds of strange things out of some sort of darkness that is in him. And we'll deal with that in a moment. And then um, Jesus heals the man, which I find extraordinary. He doesn't um, condemn the man. He doesn't uh, he's not mad at the man. He just fixes the problem. And then the people say, well, that was awesome. And uh, that's the end of the story. But the whole thing is book-ended, if that's a word, with the word authority. If you'll look in the text, it's on the front of your bulletin. You'll see the word authority at both the front end of the story and then at the end of the story. And this seems to be Mark's point. The miracle of the healing is pretty amazing, but it's not really the point of the story. Uh, We learned in school that miracles were basically things that Jesus did to validate his teaching or to validate the claims that he was making about himself. They weren't like to draw a crowd, they weren't, you know, tricks of magic or anything like that. They were basic. In fact, he spent more time denying requests for miracles than he did doing them. So it's not, although it's a piece of his ministry, it's not. The primary piece of his ministry. Uh, the primary piece of his ministry is the bringing of redemption and salvation and the message of God's love and grace and justice and so forth. It's not healing this person of that or, you know, this person of this. It's the message, the mission. And But every now and then we get to run into stories where uh, Jesus does something pretty spectacular like this. But this one's interesting because it's not that he's healing a blind man, which we can kind of get our head around. It's, there's something weird with this person, and, um, and it's very, it's, it can be sort of troubling. Let me just set the stage for you before we get into this. Uh, let me show you a photo. This is a picture of an excavation site in the area known as Gamla. And there are only three synagogues that they can find in terms of a site to excavate that predate the year 70 in the first century. So that's getting back into around the days following, just immediately following Jesus. Now, there were many, many synagogues, many of them. Philo said that on the Sabbath, there were thousands of these little, he called them schools, where people would gather and they would do the things they do in there. But we don't have a lot of those to look at prior to the year 70, but this is one of them. Now, I wanted to use this photo because you can see it's a pretty big synagogue. I mean, it has to be four or five times the size of this room. And, um, you know, the archaeologists over this site have reconstructed this in some drawings where there's almost a balcony in this synagogue. And so we're talking about three, four hundred people that could get into one of these things. And certainly there were synagogues where they were just in houses or parts of houses. But some of them were massive. And some of them were like, you know, sort of the mega synagogues of the day. And, uh, you know, because they had the best music, you know. And, um, (laughs) And so... I just wanted to give you a visual of perhaps what Jesus, where Jesus was when he was teaching, or at least something similar. And so G, the, the text tells us that Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, which was the seventh day, and he begins to teach while he's there. Uh, and while he's teaching, and the synagogue allowed that, by the way. Let me just give you a couple of ins and outs of synagogue practices. It meant the word itself means house of prayer, which eventually was translated into the word worship. And so a house of worship, prayer and worship, were synonymous to a Jew. And so, uh, but in the synagogue, uh, there were a few moving parts that always happened. One was that they would read from the scriptures, the Old Testament, they would read from uh, the passage, the passages, selected for that day or that time of year. There was almost a lectionary style reading and teaching of the scriptures in the synagogue. So uh, the story of Jesus in Luke 4 when he teaches from Isaiah 61, that's the passage that was chosen for that day. And so you have this kind of uh, rhythm to the teachings. And so they would read the scriptures. Someone would then, um, if they had this person, someone would then kind of expound on the on the text they would teach it perhaps sort of like what I'm doing uh in most cases they would translate it into Aramaic because they were reading it in Hebrew and by the time of uh the days of Jesus Hebrew was almost a dead language and so they would although some people spoke it it wasn't it wasn't dominating uh, the scene so they would translate what was just read and then they would might have a teaching on it they would also pray of course there's actually no mention of music um and I, for 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 whatever reason they may have sung, they may not. It, there's just no mention of it. Uh, but they did have coffee. <laughs> um, thank you. I'm here all year. But then uh, they would they allowed, and this is where it gets kind of dangerous. They allowed anyone on the floor to teach. So if you got something to say, you could say it. You were allowed to come up and speak into the community, you were welcome to do that. This is why when you read the book of Acts and you follow Paul, particularly Paul, and he goes from city to city to city, uh, he would always go to the synagogue and then he, could, he would teach in the synagogue. So, but it wasn't because they were like, hey, don't forget, Paul's coming next week. We've booked him, so bring a friend. It was, that, that was the custom. You could go into the synagogue and say, I, I have something to say about what you just read. And they would say, you know, speak to us. And they would do that. Uh, and then it was up to the community to sort of debate back and forth, it was open discussion. They would allowed that, which I actually like. I mean, as preaching for me is terribly frustrating because you're just looking at me. Uh, but as a as a youth minister, like we would have a room full of this many students, and I would just have a table with some notes, and we would just talk. I'm much more comfortable with that. Um, maybe we should do that. But. But they they had this interactive discussion. So it was not uncommon for someone to speak out. It was not uncommon for someone to say something from the floor uh, for sure. But in this story, it's really disturbing. I mean, this man stands up and from somewhere inside of him comes out this statement, which we'll look at in a moment, that's very frightening and very troubling. And then Jesus deals with it. Before we get there... uh, Disturbances in church services, I have a list of things that have happened here that I think are pretty <laughs> for those of you who have been around, you may remember some of these now, the first one predates me. This is back in the theater days uh, back when they were when this church was meeting at Phipps theater. I hear that there was on occasion uh, during the sermon the movie trailer would come on the screen. Was anybody here for that? A couple people all right, so a few of you were here during those days. Uh, A lot of churches start in theaters. I have friends that have started churches in theaters. That is a very common, like you should almost plan for that. At some point during your first year, the inappropriate trailer is going to come up uh, during communion meditation, all right? It's going to happen. So that one predates me, but from here, I mean, we've been in this building. I've been here going on five years in April, and a lot of stuff has happened. I can't list all of it, but uh, one of them was that the power used to always go out during worship. I don't know if if any of you remember that, but all of the circuitry was on kind of one breaker here. And uh, this building is very odd. It was built with, there are no light switches in this room. All of it is in another room. It's really strange. And, uh, but all of the circuitry sort of ended up in one, sort of in the hub, in this one place somewhere in the building. And we figured out after researching, because when you put pastors on a research uh, journey to figure out why the circuitry isn't working, nothing gets done, um, <laughs> It becomes theological at that point. Like, there's demons in here. <laughs> That's all I got. <clears throat> but we figured out that the coffee pots were tripping the power. So we learned from our friends at Magianos or Maggie's as we call them, the cooks were telling us, like, oh, that happens all the time. We have our coffee pots on a different circuit. And we were like, okay, we need a different circuit. So we had people come in and rewire the thing. And now that doesn't happen. But we would be in the middle of a song, and they would just, like, the power go out. So the band's playing and mouthing words. You can still hear the drums, by the way, because they don't need a microphone. (laughs) So it's just drums. You know, it's like, okay, the breakdown. Here we go. (laughs) And then the sound guy would run to the other room and switch the breaker back on and we'd be back up and running. That happened all the time. Uh, we fixed that since then. Oh, uh, in the summer, it doesn't happen as much anymore, but in the summer, at least once a summer, the AC would go out on the hottest day. And I remember this a few years ago. It went out and it takes about an hour, hour and a half to heat or cool this room. I mean, the, 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 temp, the temp kicks in early in the morning. And um, so it takes a while. So when we realized that the AC wasn't working and we had punched it up enough and it was actually getting hotter, um, we just kind of freaked out. So Jamie and I, we brought up as many fans as we could find. And it was, it was literally in the 80s in here. And uh, Jamie ran to Target and bought all this bottle of water. And we set up shop at the doors as people came in like, Here's your water. We're sorry. Um, we're talking about hell today. Just kind of wanted to. We just kind of wanted to give you a heads up. All right. Uh, maybe you've witnessed this and endured this, but I've had to play drums in here before because our drummer didn't show. Yeah. Anybody remember that? Not that memorable, is it, like? Yeah, I remember it. This is so funny to me, and this may not be funny to you. Uh, a friend of mine used to lead worship here for us, volunteer. His name is Kyle, and Kyle's so funny. And um, he, there are two, two, two Kyle stories, but Kyle was leading worship one Sunday, and during communion, he was singing Great as I Faithfulness. And you may know the song Great as I Faithfulness, whatever. I just repeated the title. Um, but people were coming to the tables there in communion, and he was singing the song, and he forgot the words. And he says, I don't know if you remember this, so please tell me if you remember this. But he says, he sings, Great is thy faithfulness, something about something. <laughs> Does anyone remember that? Got a couple people. People were choking on their <laughs> communion. It was like, oh my gosh, you know. CCB, You know, here we go. But there was one Sunday where his guitar battery had gone out after the first song, and we were doing the greeting. And as people came back together, he says from the stage, does anyone have a 9-volt battery? <laughs> like, who carries a 9-volt battery? Like, <laughs> Been waiting to be asked, you know, getting called up. Uh, yeah, so all kinds of things. I don't know if you remember. Uh, do you have your bulletin with you? Um, you don't okay. Well, we have these bulletins, and um, the church bulletin is always an interesting thing. I mean, my son my son plays uh, basketball. He wanted to play basketball this year, so we signed him up at Peace Tree Presbyterian. They have like a league, so we, he's never played basketball basketball before. So we didn't put him in like a league where uh, it wasn't intense. I don't want to say it's not good. I'm just saying. I was in youth ministry long enough to know not to put a kid who's never played a sport in a league where the parents are psycho. I just knew that. And so we put him in church ball and right outside of their gym, if you're not familiar with Peace Tree Pres, it's this really big church and they, their bulletin is not anything like this. It's like a magazine. And they have all these pages of, uh, of things going on and things you can do uh, and get involved with. And, and ours is similar. I mean, if you look inside of ours, I mean, we've got things about, I mean, there's bowling today. Anybody going bowling today, by the way? Yes, Midtown Bowl. Uh, there's things about Super Bowl party, uh, baptism class. It's going to snow at some point. You can see that there. Um, there's things about getting involved in community groups and Bible studies and on and on and on. Um, but what we don't have in our bulletin that a lot of churches have in our bulletin is the order of worship. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Where you, you flip open the bulletin, and I remember doing this as a high school student. You flip it open. And you read the stuff, and you're like, okay, what's what's going down today? And then you start reading through the list, and you know it begins with uh, it begins with the word prelude, which when I was in high school, that was a car. (laughs) It begins with prelude, and you're like, we're in the prelude, canon in D, and then uh, there's opening prayer, right? And there's like a hymn number, uh, another prayer, a thing, this, a statement, the sermon, and then whatever. And if you remember, if you went to church in high school, what we did was we sat there in the balcony and we checked off things as they happened. Are you with me? Was that the opening prayer? One step closer to getting out of here. And we all love the benediction because that's at the end. That means you're free to go. Thank you for enduring uh, whatever we've done to you today. And so a lot of churches put the order of worship in there. We've, we don't do that uh, for whatever reason. We, it's a surprise. You just get to experience as we go. Um, But the prayer of every pastor is, God, we've put some planning into today, obviously. We just pray something happens today that wasn't planned. You know, like, and maybe something, maybe it's something that happens, like the power goes out, or, um, you know, somebody forgets the words, or whatever. It reminds us that we're human, it reminds us that we don't we don't have control of everything. And, uh, but if you have an order of service in your hands and something happens that's not on there, that's what you remember. That's what you definitely lock into. And I think about all the things that have happened in church services, particularly ours, but all of those things together and then some, they don't even come close to equaling what happened here. I mean, Jesus is teaching, and this guy stands up, And out of him come these words that are really troubling, really scary. Look at verses 21 and 22. I want to just set the stage very quickly about um, what Mark is pushing our way with this story. It says, They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue, and he began to teach. I've already gone through that. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had, what's the word? Authority. That's the lead-in for us. That's where Mark is going with this. There's something about the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the things that he's saying that have power. Not authority in that you will respect me, but authority in that what he said, his words, his teachings, they had effect. They informed a life They transformed things. So that's where Mark is going. That's where we're going to, uh, that's what we're going to wrestle with for the most part. Is This is, I mean, there's a nice story in the middle here, a sub-story of someone being healed. But this is really about the authoritative nature of Jesus' teaching. Now it says that he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Some versions say scribes. This is not a put down on scribes. Mark is not saying Scribes are terrible. Jesus is much better. There you go. That's not what this is about. The scribes would teach uh, basically with lots of footnotes. They would say, they would read the text, and then they would say, this means this because this former scholar in a generation before us has said this, and then he said this, and he built his teachings on that. And so they would basically come basically what I do. I mean, we we have a text and we say, this is what we know about the text from previous people who have studied this and then that goes back to the next generation the next generation. We build, I mean, all of our knowledge that we have is just built on previous knowledge, right? No one just creates something. And so we're just building on what we already know. And so the scribes, I mean, that's how they taught. That's how we all teach, right? There is no brand new information. It's just expounding on existing information and then adding to what we've learned about it and maybe changing application or even, hey, we've learned something new that has changed this completely. That's how they would teach. But Jesus, it says, he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And what they're saying is that Jesus taught without footnotes. Let me show you an example. There's many examples of this. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, quote, Do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And then he says, But I tell you. It's very subversive. He's like, let me, You know the scriptures, but let me tell you, I tell you this. And he adds to it a new teaching. He has the authority to say, This is what the text says, but I say This. And this is what Mark means when he describes the people saying, there's something about the words of Jesus that are unique. They stand out. They cause us to say, he's not teaching from, he's coming like at us in autonomy. In his own authority. Saying things that have their own authority to them. And so that's the setting here. And so it begins there. And then look at verses 23 through 24. Just then a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Strange question. I know who you are, even stranger, the Holy One of God. Now a couple things about these two verses. Uh, One, is that this guy didn't walk in crazy with a knife. He's a part of their synagogue. He was there. And Mark tells this story as if no one is surprised by this. Like, oh, there's Crazy Joe again saying what he says. It's like he just stands up and begins to speak these things. And it's like nobody is really surprised. Because this guy has been a part of their community. He's within... The synagogue. He didn't just march in with a message. He's there among them. And then it says he was possessed, meaning captured, held captive by an evil spirit. And he cried out, what do you want with us? So when I was writing this in the prep stages of the sermon, I ended up going down so many rabbit trails trying to figure out what was going on because, and this is just a point of admission to you, I don't have any experience with anything like this. I don't have any friends who've gone through this. Uh, I don't have any, I mean, and I, my friends on the mission field, and let me just tell you, a lot of weird things happen on mission fields. I've, I've never heard of a story like this. I mean, I've been in situations where uh, people are prayed over, for the healing of a disease. I've been in, I've, I've put oil on people's foreheads because the scriptures tell us to do that. We've prayed for, I've done all those things, but I've never experienced anything like this. Never. And so, doesn't mean it doesn't happen, doesn't mean it can't happen. It's just, I've never been there. And so, for me, it was okay, I'm just going to deal with what Mark is telling us. And there are, there are a couple of ways to, interpret this. There are two ends of the spectrum. I would not even call them opposing ends of the spectrum on the interpretation of this. But one is simply that, okay, Mark is doing the best he can with the knowledge that he had to describe a situation in which someone uh, is suffering from some sort of mental illness. And to the tools that they had, for the tools that they had, he was just describing as best he could just by saying, this guy's possessed by something. And we know a lot about, we know a lot more about neuroscience and 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 the challenges with the brain and how people work and just sort of the different things that can come out. I mean, we have people today that can sit down and say, oh, I know exactly what's going on here. He's doing this and this and this because we know this about how the mind works. And so on one end of the interpretation spectrum is just that this is just the best they could say about a very complicated situation that we would later know more about. Or... The other end of the spectrum is taking it basically as Mark says and say, this guy, there's something very, very dark going on in this man. And it comes out and it's directed at Jesus. Now I, for what it's worth, uh, I believe that something dark was happening. Mainly because... There's a clear opposition to the work of Jesus. Now, most theologians, most scholars, um, when talking about something like this, concentrate a lot of this activity to the days of Jesus, particularly right around him. And so, there's not a lot of mention of this in the Old Testament, nor in the early church writings. It wasn't an issue that they dealt with very much, dealt very much with But I do believe something was going on because there seemed to be some clear opposition to what Jesus was up to. Like something or someone didn't want Jesus to succeed in his mission. And for me, it comes down to an assumption. And again, for what it's worth, I mean, you don't have to agree. or I mean, it doesn't really matter to me. But for me, just for me personally, it just comes down to an assumption. And it's this. If Jesus was who he claimed to be, that not only was he God in the flesh and God here among us, that his mission in the world was to bring salvation and redemption and rescue, forgiveness of sins, mercy, and freedom. It's safe to assume that there would be forces that would be against that. Some kind of alternative cultural voice. I mean, in modern day uh, stories, I I read about I got a chance to hear uh, and be in the same room, when Gary Haugen spoke, uh, he's president of International Justice Mission. They basically free slaves. I know that just sounds tremendous in our day and age, but um, he's a big deal. He's, got, he's, he's had Oprah time. I mean, like, he's a big deal. And the videos and the films and the stories of these, of these teams descending into villages around the world where slavery is still rampant or where genocide is still happening at a large level or an unknown level, and to watch them rescue girls from sexual slavery, from uh, brothels in different places around the world, Atlanta, by the way, being number one in the United States for the sex trade, and to hear and to read about the reactions of those who were lording over these people when they bring the alternative voice of freedom and justice and compassion into an environment like that, the people who are running those environments are basically angry. Like, what do you want with us? They don't want to give up what they're doing. When there's an alternative voice of the ways of God brought into a place that is so far off the rails... It causes frustration. It causes, on a very deep level, anger. Because they recognize what's about to happen. They recognize that their their scheme is about to go dormant or non-existent. And on a much lower level, again, because that's way up here, but on a much lower level, but yet highly practical, all of us can grasp and understand what it's like to be overcome and held captive by things that are very contrary to God's best for our lives. We all get that. We've all experienced, quote-unquote, possession at some level, be it with anger, lust, greed, and so on, to the point where if we're far enough into that, when the alternative voice of Jesus comes at us, it causes us to push back in anger and rage, like this man saying, "What what are you trying to do to me? For some reason, I have been uh, blessed or cursed, depending on your interpretation, of just having to deal with so many affairs in my ministry. In my last church, we just had a run of them. And as a youth minister, it's like, it's just hitting home. And uh, some people, you know, it's like the the funniest thing in all of that is how ineffective the alternative voice is to people who are caught up in affairs. You just can't talk a man out of an affair. No matter how many times you show him pictures of his children, pictures of his wife, the picture of their wedding day, no matter how many times you throw the truth at them at how bad this is going to hurt their families and their lives and how wrong this is, they don't care. They don't really care. Because they are captive and overcome with an alternative and destructive rationale, possessed. their situation. They can't let go of it. And when you come at them with a new alternative voice, they're angry. Get out of my house. You don't understand. What are you trying to do to me? And so Jesus is teaching and this man stands up and he says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? which I read is kind of a put-down. Because remember a couple of weeks ago when Nathaniel was told that the Messiah was from Nazareth, and he said, really? What, what comes out of there that's any good? And it's like the, the Spirit is speaking to Jesus saying, who are you anyway? My friend Derek Lehman, who's a rabbi but also a Christian, says that demons in the days of the Gospels here They were somewhere between us and God. Like they knew enough about the heavenly realms. They knew more than we did about that. And they knew enough about Jesus, but not enough to keep them from fighting him. And yet, and this is a very interesting lesson here, and yet they seem to know more about Jesus than the people actually around Jesus. I know who you are, he says. I know what you're trying to do. And so look at verses 25 and 26. So Jesus says to him, be quiet. He said sternly, exclamation point. This is not the emaciated Swedish pale Jesus they were used to. This is an angry Jesus. Come out of him. Just a phrase about release, like let's end this. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And then in verse 27, the people were also amazed and they asked each other, what is this? Right, a new teaching. Again, here we come, a new teaching. And with authority, he even gives orders to the evil spirits and they obey him. It's not the first time that phrase will come up. It's like, if you're familiar with the Gospels, it's uh, when he calms the storm, the disciples say, who is this guy? With his own words, he calms the waves. The winds and the waves obey him. So for Mark, this is about the words of Jesus having power. And then it says news about him spread quickly, obviously, over the whole region. Now on the surface, let me just bring this down to the conclusion here. On the surface, we have a nice explosive ending to this situation where Jesus heals this man of of the darkness of his spirit. And so part of the message Mark is sending is that that somehow through Jesus, evil is defeated. That somehow through him, evil is defeated. If you can, turn to the next book to the right, chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. I love this little uh, piece of, of the story. In verse 31, it, it, it says, At that time... Some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. So we have some Pharisees that are uh, they know and are protective of Jesus enough to come to him and say, Look, you need to leave because Herod, and this is not the first time that a Herod wanted to kill Jesus. Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus replied, and we got we gotta love the, the first four words here. Jesus replied, Go tell that fox. Mm-mm. Whatever that means, it's a beat down. <laughs> Notice what he says. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. Some versions say complete my work. What does that mean to the listener who's hearing that? I'll tell you what it meant to them. Nothing. It's one of those things that Jesus said, which he often said things like this, where everyone just looked at each other and went, I have no idea what he's talking about. But we know that he's talking about his resurrection, the third day. I will complete my goal. So days one and two, today and tomorrow, he says, days one and two are taken up with things like healing people, driving out demons, etc. and so forth. Days one and two in this statement, and this teaching from him, this very short line, is simply a description of what he's doing while he's here. But on the third day, all of that stuff is done. On the third day, he reaches his goal. The resurrection seals up all of that. So today and tomorrow I'm doing this, descriptive of this is what I'm doing now. But on the third day, all of that is complete. So somehow Mark is sending a nice message to us. That through Jesus, evil is defeated, which is a nice amen moment. It doesn't have any power over us. Now, we can allow it in, but it does not overtake us. We cannot blame the gods, the spirits, the demons. They have no power. All of that is done. But it doesn't stay there. Mark ends the story where he began, which is at the authority of Jesus in his words. The power of his words to bring change to a life. This season of epiphany, which sits between Christmas and Lent, seven, eight weeks long, the heartbeat of that season is about recognizing and celebrating who Jesus is. Simply all, and that's all we've done in this series is say, look, there's not a lot of application to this series. It's not even really a series. It's just an invitation for you to pay attention to Jesus, to follow him around through the gospels, to listen to the stories about him. And basically, the gospel writers, they all put these stories in their accounts of Jesus' life simply to show us who he was and then to, they do have an agenda, by the way, and that's to convince us to trust our, our souls and our lives and our daily living with him. That's their goal. I mean, John ends his gospel that way, saying, Jesus did a lot of other stuff that I didn't record, but I wrote all this stuff down so that you may believe. Like, that's the point. In this season, we're just sitting and, and paying attention and watching and recognizing, and for those of us who are Christians, celebrating who Jesus is. And Mark, I mean, that all the gospel writers chose certain stories to begin their telling of the actual work in the ministry of Jesus, Mark starts here with the healing of a man who has an evil spirit and its book ended and held together in a framework about the authority of the words of Jesus. And so the first thing Mark tells us about Jesus is that his words have the power to inform and transform a life. And that causes us to ask the obvious and most frightening question of application, which is simply, does the teaching of Jesus inform a kind of living in me that represents God's will for my life? For the Christian, that's the question. Is quiet time working? For most, I would say no. Is all the worship music working? Maybe temporarily or all the Bible studies that I'm in, is that working? Maybe. And when I say working, I mean, does my life make shifts based on what I hear? Does it have a marked change because of the words of Jesus? Is it working? Does it inform a kind of living that when people see me, there's something authoritative about what I believe. There's change. And that's the application question for those of us who are Christians. For those of you who are not Christians, believe it or not, there's application here. One, I go back to what I said two Sundays ago when we preached the whole sermon on come and see. And the invitation to just come and Follow Jesus around for a while, meaning read the only read the Gospels. Start there. Have a journal. Write down the things that you notice about Jesus. Write down the tensions that you have with the certain stories. Write down the things that inspire you. Write down the things that um, challenge you. Follow him around through the Gospels. And... Uh, And so I still stand by that. Just come and see. Continue to come here Sunday after Sunday. If I'm the only guy that's speaking these things to you and into your life, then just come and see through that way. But I'm going to add to that challenge today uh, for you. And that's not just come and see, but now begin the journey of letting the words of Jesus inform your life. Go ahead And actually put into practice some of the things that he says. It's kind of like this behaving your way into a faith. Let me give you some examples. Um, When Jesus, these are very simple. Well, they're not really simple to do, but they're they're simple to understand. When when Jesus says, uh, love your neighbor, really do that. Like, just do that for a while. And whatever that looks like for you, then just do that. Uh, And when Jesus says, love your enemies, do that. I know you don't want to do that. But do it. Like, put yourself in the pathway or the wake of Jesus and do the things that he says. Like, just love your neighbor. Love your enemies. Right? If you have enough faith and belief system that you believe there's a God, Jesus gives us a prayer to pray, the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, Pray it. Just pray it. Or um, generosity. Jesus has a lot of things to say about generosity with our resources. Do it. Participate in a Jesus kind of generosity for a time. I don't mean like, yeah, the guy asked me for a dollar and I gave it to him. Intentionally build generosity into your life the way that Jesus would. And see where that takes you. See where that leads. Let his words inform the way that you live. Put them into practice. Behave your way into something. See where that goes. That's all the gospel writers are saying. They're giving us stories so that they can convince us to keep listening, to keep watching, to keep reading, to keep following. And then at the end, this is some trivia about the gospel of Mark. I don't know if this is interesting at all, but I'll just end with this. It's not in our it's not in our Bibles because they're not in Greek unless you're just like a rock star and you brought that with you. But the word immediately in Greek appears thirty-four times in the first nine chapters of Mark. So if you know that and you're reading it, of course you could just read it in English and get the feeling like Jesus is running everywhere. Immedi- the word immediately appears three times in our text today. Three times. It's Dr- Mark is driving us somewhere very fast. It, it's not as though, it, if, if, you, if you read it cynically, you're like, does he not care about these stories? Like, okay, fine, we're done with that story. Next one, next one, next one, next one. And then we get to chapter 10. What is chapter 10? It's the beginning of the Passion Week. What matters most to Mark is that we have enough stuff to go on to get to Easter Week because that's where it matters for him. Like this resurrection, boom, this is what matters But until then, let me give you some stuff to follow along with, and let's get to there, and then let's celebrate. But for now, he's pulling us very quickly. The other irony is that it's the fastest moving gospel, and it's the one that mentions the Sabbath the most. I just think that's sort of interesting. There's no rest in Mark's gospel, and yet the Sabbath is talked about the most. Uh, I don't know what you do with that, but you know, it's good lunch conversation. But that's what the writers of the gospel are doing. They're Inviting us to listen and to read on and to put into practice what these things are asking us to do. Let me close with this verse from James uh, chapter one, verse twenty-two. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. I think at the heart of this story is that that Jesus has the power in his words alone to affect change in the lives of people. But part of that is that we obey, that we, that we build a rhythm of obedience in our relationship with him. And that's why I think Mark doesn't deal so much with the story of the man, but the framework of authority in what Jesus was saying. Amen? I'm going to pray and we'll close with communion as we always do. And um, it's 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 clearly an introspective time to sit still for a moment and then move to a table, therefore, around the room and to take the bread and the juice and uh, to let that be a weekly reminder of, uh, of God's work in the world and in your life. And so uh, when I finish praying, you can make your way at your own pace to a table. And uh, the offering buckets are on the table, so if you have prayer requests or you want to, you know, uh, drop your communication card in there. Or if you've come uh, to give as well, you can do that at this time. And then uh, and then we'll sing a song before we dismiss. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. And thank you for um, just the difficulty of this story and what it, it causes us to uh, imagine. Uh, it must have been extraordinary to be in that place and to witness something so otherworldly And yet, what mattered most was not even really the miracle, but the authority of the words of your son. That just a few simple words changes the story of a man. And the fame begins to spread. And God, let that penetrate our relationship with you. Let that penetrate Um, the lives of those who are searching for answers about you. That at the end of the day, this is about the power and the authority of your son to inform and transform who we are. And there is the nice subplot that you defeat evil, and that's just so we look forward to that. At the end of all of this, we look forward to a day when heaven and earth return together and that all things are made new again. But God, as you slowly roll the world back to the beginning when things were good and perfect, let us until that moment have faith in you to trust you each step of the way. And as we take this bread and this juice, let it be a reminder that you were with us, that you uh, are over us and in us and among us and that you love us. It's in your name that I pray. And everyone said, amen.